0: This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, March 11th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Andrew Pack. More information can be found at rdchurch.com.
1: Today's scripture... 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 through 22. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, for in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word.
0: Good morning. It's your first time with us. My name is Andrew. I'm the director of discipleship here. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table out there. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that with you when you go from here um, and read it. Uh, We will be, I said last week that we were kind of doing two parts on on the profile of a cross-centered life. And so this is the second part of that, of looking at what our life looks like in response to the cross of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we will go ahead and dig in. King Jesus, I just pray for us right now that the reality of who you are the reality of what you have done, the reality of what you're doing in the world would impact us. This thing that we do is not to gather to have some feelings about some stuff, but to be radically changed by the truth of the gospel. Jesus, you have saved us. You have set us apart. You have made us people new. We are taking off the old person. We are putting on the new. We are being transformed into the people that we actually already are because of the gospel. And so I pray for us today, Lord Jesus, that by the power of Your Word and by the power of Your Spirit, You would change us. You would embolden us. You would enliven us. You would send us Your power, Lord Jesus. That we would have a bold confidence in the truth of who You are and what You're doing. We can only do this by Your power and by Your grace and by Your mercy. And so I just pray, whatever is of me, Lord, would just be forgotten. But the things that are of you, the things that we have come to, to gaze upon and to look upon about you, Lord Jesus, that those things would give us a new passion today for the truth of the gospel, that would light the passion of our hearts on fire, that we would worship you afresh, we would worship you anew, and that we would rededicate our lives today to following you and glorifying your holy name. We do this not so that you will love us, but because you've already loved us so, Lord Jesus, we pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. We're in 1 Peter, we're in chapter 3, we're starting in verse 13. You and I are standing in America. We are a people who love comfort. We love comfort and hate to be uncomfortable. We hate anything that pushes us or, or makes us feel out of sorts. We hate it. We love to be at the center of everything. We love for our lives, to the, rock, the boat to be unrocked, and for our lives to just float. We love to be at the center of our own story, and we love to be at the center of our own lives, and we love for things to go the way that we want them to go, and when they don't go the way that we want them to go, honestly, we often throw a fit. Here's the problem. The gospel calls us to be uncomfortable, not comfortable. The gospel calls us to live differently. It is uncomfortable to say no when everyone else is saying yes. It is uncomfortable to put other people first. It is uncomfortable to put yourself last. It is uncomfortable to claim to love Jesus and know Jesus in a time when everybody else would rather do something else. And the reality is to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, to walk in his ways, to live for his glory. Well, to be frank, it makes us at least uncomfortable or maybe worse, as we'll see with Peter. Because you see, the gospel is not about your comfort. The gospel is not the message that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. So you get to go to heaven and be with him forever. That is part of the gospel. Part of the gospel is that we get to go to be with Jesus, but accepting the gospel and following Jesus isn't just insurance so we don't go to hell. Hell is not a place, or pardon me, heaven, let's get them right. Heaven is not a place for people who are afraid of hell. Heaven is a place for people who love Jesus. That's what heaven is. It's for people who love Jesus and want to be with him. Likewise, Jesus didn't come to just be your friendly counselor who pats you on the back and claps for you for everything you do and gives you a gold star for everything you do in life. In fact, knowing Jesus can be uncomfortable because when you know the God of the universe, you get a good view of who he is, a good view of who you are, and the gap between those two. The good news of the gospel is he actually is working in our lives to change us. The good news of the gospel is not that Jesus came to make your life comfortable but that God himself entered into human history to deal with sin. Sin's a very serious reality that's not just wiling out, not just cake stands, not just partying, and not just the traditional things we think of when we think of sin. It's also all the right things we do for all the wrong reasons. All the things we do to just justify ourselves in the world or to feel right about ourselves in the world, or maybe so that God will love us. Or or, or it's all the things we choose not to do. The the reality is that you and I as Americans, uh, we are very comfortable, and the things that make us materially comfortable actually make people in the rest of the world very uncomfortable as they work to make us comfortable. We don't even think about it. We, we don't even care about the textile industry in the developing world. We don't think about it. You don't look at the, the tag on the shirt that you buy and think about the conditions in the life of the people who made that shirt for you We just do fast fashion where we say, oh, geez, the shirt was cool last week. It's not cool this week. I better get a new shirt. We love comfort, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to deal with our while and out, and he came to deal with our act of sin, and he came to deal with all the right things we choose not to do. And he didn't just come to deal with sin. He came to make us right with God and give us life and life in abundance and give us everything in the gospel. The reality is, is in Jesus, we don't just have enough. We have absolutely everything. The good news of the gospel is not that we're scraping by spiritually, but that we've been given absolutely everything in Jesus. And this good news should change the way we deal with the things that make us comfortable. And let me make you uncomfortable and myself uncomfortable while I'm at it for just a moment. If Jesus is everything, what wouldn't we give for him? Right? Are you willing to give it all for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to lose your house for Jesus are you willing to lose your car for Jesus? Are you willing to stop playing fantasy football for Jesus Christ? Right? We are a very comfortable people. You go to the coffee shop, you order a latte, and when someone else makes your coffee that you pay $7 for you, you have also told them how many degrees you would like your coffee to be. It needs it can't be 2 degrees hotter or 2 degrees colder. It must be the Goldilocks temperature for my hazelnut latte or else heads are going to roll. Because we love comfort and we hate to be uncomfortable. Now the gospel of Jesus Christ confronts us on this because the promise of the gospel is not that you will have a comfortable life. The promise of the gospel is that you get Jesus and get to be loved by God forever and ever and ever. Praise the Lord. And as we turn to 1 Peter here in verse 13, we're going to see three things. The Bible calls us to live differently. And sometimes we may suffer for that. Sometimes. It's an operative word. We'll talk about that. Two, two, Jesus lived differently and did suffer for it. And three, as Christians, when we suffer, we stand with Jesus. Verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, the fact that Peter even has to ask this question means he understands that if you want to follow Jesus, you might have to pay for that. He understands that you following Jesus might make life uncomfortable wherever you live because we actually live in a broken world where people don't naturally all love Jesus and sing Kumbaya and hold hands all the time, right? There are people on your block who think Jesus is stupid. Can we just be really frank and just talk about it, right? You live in Washington State. Heck, you might be here right now and you think Jesus is stupid, but your friend brought you here. We are so thankful you're here, and all we want for you to is know, to know Jesus. And we are just, with all sincerity, I'm so thankful and glad you're here right now. But the reality is, as you go to work, somebody at work thinks Jesus is stupid. Somebody on your block thinks Jesus is stupid. Some of your friends probably think Jesus is stupid. Or is that just me and my friends? And I work here, so, you know, hey. Whatever. <laughs> do that with that what you will. But, but Peter knows this, right? That, that for being zealous for doing good, you might actually have to pay the price for this. Now, what's really important, I think, in a moment like this is to stop and say, well, what does he mean do good? How does the Bible define doing good? Because we all sort of want to do good. I, I don't often meet like Skeletor or Cobra Commander Or some other person who actually just wants to do evil all the time and will say so out loud. So the Bible must have something different in mind. Don't run into Skeletor. He's really scary. I'm not sure why my parents bought me that toy when I was five. It's frightening. My children found it recently, and they were like, what the heck is that? It's Skeletor. They were extra confused by Stinkor, by the way, if you know Stinkor. I'm in John, I'm in chapter 6, I'm in verse uh, 25, and we're thinking about what it means to do good, okay? What it means to do good. Now, Jesus has just fed the multitudes from a little boy's lunch, Uh, his disciples have gone out on the sea, Jesus has shown up, and the boat has teleported to the other side of the sea. I have no time to unpack anything I just said, but it's all right there and you can read it this afternoon. But we're in verse 25. When they found him, that's Jesus, <clears throat> and the crowds, were the they, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Because he was on the other side of the sea a minute ago. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because, of, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They're not there for Jesus. They're there because Jesus is going to make them comfortable. We do this, Right? Check your prayer life last week. How much of your prayer life was spent saying things like, God, you are amazing. You are glorious and wondrous. Thank you for the air in my lungs. You are so gracious to me. To be frank, oftentimes when we're not being careful, you actually have to habituate yourself to prayer. You have to go after it. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. So often the sum total of our prayers are, Dear Jesus, I really need some help here on this thing. Can you help me out? Now, here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He loves to help you out. He actually tells you to pray to him that way. Don't, don't, don't stop doing that. But I'd also urge you, consider how wonderful he is and make sure that the, that the trap of your life is not only to seek felt needs from the Lord. He cares about those things. He says it over and over again. Don't think I'm saying that he doesn't. But these people aren't after Jesus. They're after the bread he can get them. Seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you had your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. If the sum total of your life is chasing the stuff of the world, your life is empty. It's a fact. If you are chasing money or prestige or popularity or things, It turns out at some point in time, if you take a sober moment and look at those things that you are after, you will find that they are trash. They are rubbish. They are garbage. And they will not fulfill you. God has actually engineered your life in such a way that not only will they not fulfill you, you are built for more. You are built to find your fulfillment in something so much greater and grander than the high score on Zelda, right? That is not, it was at one point in time, the point of my life. But it turns out when you get there, when you get to the last level, and it seems silly that I'm using Zelda. This is true about everything else. You get to the last level, and it's just over. And nothing happened. The high wears off very quickly. There's only one thing that's eternal that we're to pursue, and his name is Jesus. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. That's really good news, by the way. You're not climbing a ladder to get to it. He's busy opening the door saying, come on in. We're usually trying to do spiritual push-ups and other things, and he's busy just trying to invite us into the party, and we're busy trying to do something else. For on him... God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do? Now listen. What must we do to be doing the works of God? This is a wonderful question. This is the question of your life. Or at least one of the top three or four questions you should ask yourself with your life. What do I need to do to do God's work? And what's really great is it's a great thing to pray and ask him about. An unbelievably helpful way to start your day is on your knees in prayer, acknowledging who's God and who's not in the God-you relationship, and then asking God what he wants you to do with the next 24 hours. Dear Jesus, you are the king. I love you. You've saved me. Help me. What do you want me to do with today? Today belongs to you. Because I don't know if you know this. Today belongs to Jesus, not you. And honestly, the more we embrace this and run out to this and, and experience this, the more joy we have in our lives, friends. There's just joy out there for us, and we, we skip it. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this, now listen, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. What is the number one thing you can do with your life? Believe Jesus with all your heart. And get absolutely everything out of your way that gets in the way of you and Jesus. That's why Peter's after holiness. He's not trying to say, it's not about, hey, watch this or don't watch this. And it is to an extent, right? There are wicked things that actually objectify and dehumanize people that we pay money to watch on TV, right? And the reason we don't watch them is not so God can go, oh, good, good score. You got a good score. You watched PG 13 movie? Well, PG 13, you get five points. Oh, uh, hmm, football game. Oh, that's kind of violent. Uh, Like, that's not how it works, right? The, The point of our life is that we are busy like Icarus. You know the Icarus story? Not Kid Icarus, not NES. We're not making any more NES references. Icarus is this mythological story about this kid whose dad, they built some wings to fly out of prison. And the wings are made out of wax, so if they fly at the right level, they fly out into freedom. But if they fly too close to the sun, the, the wings melt and they crash and they die. Icarus dies. because He flies too close to the sun. Here's what we do. We don't ask ourselves, if today belongs to Jesus and the things I'm doing today, am I doing the things today that draw me closer to the Lord? We instead often ask ourselves, how close can I get to the sun before my wings melt? How nasty can I get? How dark can I get? How much can I sin before I've crossed the line and actually sin, and now I'm in trouble? We are rarely leaning on the promises that if we draw near to God, He will draw near to us and ask with our life, what do I need to do to draw near to the Lord? We're often busy trying to fly as close to the sun as we can before our wings melt. And here's the scary thing. Once we've done that, we're actually already sinning because our aim is not Jesus, it's something else. Jesus wants us to believe Him and believing Him isn't simply signing on. Well, you can't actually do religious stuff on the census. But it's not about just like signing a thing. So, oh yeah, I'm in the Christian club so that I'm in the Christian club. Yay, for me, I'm in the Christian club. That's that's not what it means to believe Jesus. To believe Jesus means to look upon the face of the Lord and the power of the gospel and the power of the cross and turn to him and let that reality be the reality that informs and defines every facet of your life. Every facet of your life. That's what it is to believe Jesus. Jesus answered, and this is the work of God to believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign uh, do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you from bread from heaven. And you almost feel like there's an implicit dum-dums in there, but I don't know that Jesus would have said dum-dums, but I sort of feel like it kind of is in there, right? Of course, Moses didn't give them the bread. God did, right? It's the, the truth of every one of God's leaders through all of history. Moses didn't do it. God did it, right? It's not my job to stand up here and show you that I'm smart. It is my job to say, look what the Bible says about Jesus. Yay! let's sing. That's my job. Thank you. At least somebody made it through daylight savings and is awake and alive. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave them bread from heaven, but, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Oh, something even matters here. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, "Sir, give us this bread always." Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst." So when we think about when when Peter is talking about good, what it is to do good, it is to believe this Jesus. But again, there is a price for doing this kind of good. Go with me to Mark chapter uh, eight and verse. We'll start in verse 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, this is Jesus again, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is very uncomfortable. To do the good work of God means sometimes being estranged from old friends it can mean the loss of the resources which you have worked very hard for. It can mean not getting the job or having an uncomfortable time at your job. It can mean not getting that apartment that you want. Those things are illegal in America, by the way, but it does not not happen. We only need to look to the brothers and sisters in the developing world and see that people are losing a lot for Jesus a lot for Jesus, and we forget about them all the time. They are our family. We need to pray for them. We need to visit them. We need to work for them. We need to help them. We need to resource them. We need to do everything we can to help the gospel go forth to the ends of the earth, because that is the thing that Jesus gave us to do. And sometimes, by the way, that makes us uncomfortable. It's not comfortable out there. It's not safe old Snohomish. You can go to Africa and get parasites. You can get sick. You can get malaria. And so we say, I'll let somebody else go. God, you don't mean me. (laughs) You mean somebody else, one of those missionary kind of people or whatever that go do stuff like that. I'm going to stay here where it's safe. Friends, we are very safe, and it is a dangerous thing for our souls. So here we are in 35. Now listen. I need you to listen. This isn't for people far from here. This is for you. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory in the Father with the, from the Father with his holy angels. There are going to be times in our lives to be associated with Jesus, there is a price to pay. But the reality of the gospel is that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have Jesus, which means we have absolutely everything, which means that they can take care of, take away everything that you see, everything that you can tangibly hold on to and say, This belongs to mine. And yet, because of the economy of the gospel, we still have absolutely everything in Jesus. You have everything in Christ. They can take it all away and you still have everything. And yet when we trade Jesus away, you can have absolutely everything, but you have absolutely nothing. With Jesus, you get everything. Go with me to the Sermon on the Plain, which is in Luke chapter 6. Uh, It's not an airplane, by the way. Sermon on the mounts on a hill, Sermon on the Plains down in a valley. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. We're in chapter 6, we're in verse 20. And he lifted his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Or happy. It's another way to translate that. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. There is a day coming when God restores everything, and it is going to be amazing. Blessed are you. Now listen, this is some crazy town stuff here. We're about to take a trip to crazy town that only makes sense in the gospel. Blessed are you when people hate you. What? And when they exclude you. Oh, we hate to be excluded. Somebody unfriends you you don't remember from 10 years ago, and you make a huff about it, right? You know what I mean, too. It's not talking about someone unfriending you. We're talking about someone kicking you out of the family. It's comfortable here for us. I know lots of people living right here in Washington who have lost their families for Jesus. Their mother or father say, if you're going to follow that guy, I don't want anything to do with you. Passed a number of people through that. The uh, developing Muslim world, is the, by develop I mean developing in the gospel. You become a Christian, you're out of the family. Right? You don't get to go into town and buy food because they throw rocks at you. That is to be excluded in a way that is a little beyond what most of us understand. And yet, brothers and sisters in Christ are doing all that all over the world because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus is everything. Now listen, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, I've been in ministry for a number of years. I've had a lot of friends in various kinds of churches and however the world defines success in a church or however you want to deal with that i know lots of people who have they get in a paper and they have to put it on the internet and tell you hey look the paper wrote a thing about us they think we're amazing yay look what we're doing we're amazing yay i've never known anyone of my friends to ever send me the clip in the paper and say the world is celebrating us are we still on gospel here The world is making much of us, are we still being faithful to Jesus? And they certainly don't send you the clip in the paper when someone writes a really nasty article about you and say, look, they hate us. Yay! Rejoice! The world hates us. We are amazing! Except for look, it seems so absurd and then you just read the plain text. Verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Get up and dance when the world hates you because you love Jesus. Because they don't love Jesus, they love themselves and hate Jesus. Are you willing to be hated for the gospel? It's painful to be hated. You don't want to be hated. I don't want to be hated. But what's clear is when we are suffering and especially when we are suffering for the Lord and the world is trying to knock our hands open from our tight grip upon Him, that He is what we value. He is what is true. He is what accounts for us. And those, oh, pardon me. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so they did to our fathers, the prophets. You're in good company when you suffer for Jesus. In fact, you're in the best company because Jesus suffered for you. We stand with Jesus in suffering. Go back with me to Pete. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. All they can take away is your coat or whatever, your house, your car. But not height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. They can't take that from you, ever. But in your hearts, oh, do not be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. It is interesting here that he uses two kingly titles Christ, not his last name. Christ, it's the Greek word for Messiah, which is God's restorative king that the Old Testament promised about. Lord, kurios, this is kingly stuff here. So you need to know while you are clinging tightly to Jesus and the world is trying to knock him out of your hands, that Jesus is clinging tightly to you and he is the king of everything. Don't be afraid. Hold fast. He'll give you more strength than you even realize you have. Hold on. Hold on. But in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. Listen, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Are you ready? I mean, this is not to put you on the spot. If you walked out of here right now and someone said, hey, church, huh? What's that all about? People are friendly. They say things like that maybe not that way, but you know, they do. Oh, you're a pastor. What's, what's that all about? Oh, seminary. What's that all about? Whatever it is, whatever's your thing, whatever thing you can kind of fill in the blanks there. Are you ready? Can you give someone the gospel in 30 seconds? Can, can you quickly tell them about who he is? Can you start that jovial conversation with the guy at Hagen, when you're just checking out the frozen pizzas because it's Sunday and you don't feel like cooking, what'd you do today? Oh, I went to church. Oh, huh. what's that all about? See, what happens. You ever been to Hagen? Things like that happen, or maybe Safeway. You're at Safeway, that's fine. Some people don't like Hagen. Some people don't like Safeway. I don't care. There's a bunch of people who need Jesus who work there, so everybody go. We'll divide up Hagen, Safeway. We live in Snohomish. There's two grocery stores. You have to pick one. But just, and, and I would also say not to shame you. There, there's actually a bunch of people in this church who would love to help you. If, you. if you say, I would have no idea what to say to someone if someone asked me something like that. So you have two choices now. You can know that you don't know what to say and you can be so embarrassed you don't get any help and then you still don't know what to say. Or you can walk in the fact that you're full in a church full of people who love you and care about you and want to help you. And then all you got to do is say, hey, could somebody help me? I know Aaron would love to help you. There's a church full of people who would love to help you with that very simple question. And if you're not here today and, and you're, you're not a Christian, you need to know this is, this is all we want for you. That you would know that Jesus is the Lord who will take away your sins, who will make you right, and that, that you don't have to jump through some hoops, you don't have to clean your life up. You need to come to him with empty hands and he'll save you today, like right now. He will do it right now. and We need you to know that. So we have to be ready, and we don't shy away from it, even when it's uncomfortable. For this reason, that hope is in you. Yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. This is a great caveat. Don't go get that rude track that's mean, right? Track's a little piece of... I don't have a piece of paper. It's a little piece of paper. It says something about the gospel. So doing gospel stuff isn't walking around being a jerk to people, okay? Uh, I had a friend who pastored in Montana, there was a guy who was a jerk to people, and what he would do is that he'd wait until you put the, the gas, your, um, what do you call it, the nozzle in the gas tank. And when you hit go, then he'd have you cornered, and he'd be a total jerk to you until you were going to hell. Wouldn't tell you a lot about Jesus, but you were going to hell and you needed to repent. And as soon as they could get out of there, they would, but he knew he had some time. And everybody in town, turns out, thought he was a jerk the jerk of White Sulphur Springs, Montana. Now that guy thinks he's being persecuted because he's a Christian. He is not being persecuted for being Christian. He's being persecuted for being a jerk. No one wants to get gassed with him, not because he loves Jesus, but he's a jerk. So don't leave here feeling bad because you haven't been telling people about Jesus and show up and be a jerk. To the guys that I'm telling about Jesus at Hagen in the grocery store line, because then they'll say, hey, all these Christians come in, and they're being a jerk, and, and then, then it doesn't work, right? Got this guy. We talk about Man or Man, other bands. He's great. Try to talk to him about Jesus, but you got the 30 seconds, and you just do it, right? But don't be a jerk, and don't respond to having not done it by going around being a jerk to everybody. But there's lots of people who would love to help you learn how to do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience. Now, he's going to come back to this idea in a second. Now, we have this clear conscience knowing I love Jesus, I believe who Jesus is, and I'm following him with everything I've got. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Because you're being kind, you're holding fast to the gospel, and they're being rude to you for it. Now, listen. For it is better to suffer for doing good. Now, he ends the sentence by saying than for doing evil. So again, Everybody in town thought that guy was a jerk because he was a jerk. He was suffering for doing evil. But it says this, if that should be God's will, that it's God's will to allow these things into your life so that the genuineness of your faith might be tested and you might cling to him as we go through this world that's broken, that he's restoring. God is at work in this world. He is restoring. it. Verse 18, now here's the fuel for the fire on our life clinging to Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Now, so what He does is then He immediately takes this idea of suffering and drives it into the good news of the Gospel. Why should you be kind? Why should you not treat people poorly? Why should you do this thing? Why should you give your testimony? Why should you give the hope that is in you? Because that you and I are sinners apart from Christ operative word, apart from Christ. You and I are sinners who have messed everything up apart from Christ, unrighteous, okay? But Jesus and His righteousness has come on the great rescue mission and God's great program to save sinners like you and me from ourselves and from our sin to life in Him. Isn't that interesting that He just goes right into it? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for unrighteous. Listen, that He might bring us to God. That He might reach down into our lives and the mess and the muck of our lives and He drags us out of the mess and He brings us to God. Empty-handed, then redeemed. So if you're not a Christian and you're saying, yeah, but you don't know me, you don't know my life, you don't know what I bring in here. You're right. I don't god who knows absolutely everything does and he died on the cross for your sins and he's on the great rescue mission and he will rescue you today repent and believe repent and believe now this is where we get into this idea that jesus lived differently and and he suffered for it go with me to hebrews or in chapter 13 and let's see this again, driven right down into the gospel. In verse nine, it says this, "Do not be led <coughs> excuse me, uh, by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good from the heart for the heart to be strengthened by grace. That's why he does it. You need to be strengthened by grace. You don't feel like hanging on to Jesus, you need the truth of the gospel. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them, we have an altar from which Uh, from those who which serve the tent have no right to eat. We live in a new administration under Christ Jesus. We live under this new covenant. It's talking about this old covenant, the way the people of God lived before Jesus came. The way it worked was God in his grace and mercy set up this thing called the Levitical law, which was a means by which we were clearly set apart in the world. The people of God were, that is. Now, the problem with that is that we're pretty good at losing. We're pretty good at breaking the rules and not doing what we're supposed to do. Now, God is gracious. Never forget that. Most quoted Old Testament by, about God, uh, most quoted Old Testament in the Old Testament, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what the Bible says about him over and over and over again. So when we screw up, he had this whole thing called the sacrificial system, where by which you go and say, hey, I screwed up. And they say, it's cool. You're supposed to die, but this goat's gonna die instead of you. So lucky you. Thank you, Jesus. Well, they don't know his name's Jesus yet, but let's not get too technical here. The biggest problem with that, of course, is they go in, they deal with your sin. You walk out and you see that neighbor who owes you 10 bucks, and you punch him in the nose. You get your 10 bucks, but then you have to use your 10 bucks to go buy the goat to deal with your sin again. And you just do that over and over and over and over and over again. But Jesus comes once and for all. The sacrifice that's sufficient for all. To pay the price for all of your sins. This is the beauty of the gospel. And I need you to hear this, especially if you're a Christian. The gospel is not that Jesus Christ paid the price for all of your sins before you met him. It's that Jesus Christ has paid the price for all of your sins. He knew, listen, this is how much he loves you. He knew all the ways you are going to sin against him after he saved you. And he saved you anyways. I don't know about you, but when I look at my life, that is amazing. That's amazing. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He came and died to set you apart. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. We follow Jesus wherever it takes us, and sometimes that takes us into suffering. Now listen, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So that verse has been used a lot of really, really wrong ways to justify things the Bible doesn't talk about, such as limbo. We frankly don't have time to get down into there. What this is probably talking about, Uh, are the those in prison are those uh, these demons uh, that are in gloomy chains according to Jude and Jesus is likely doing some kind of victory lap there are those who would say that well when Jesus died on the cross then he went to hell for three days there's a big giant problem with that that's the thief dying next to Jesus on the cross and he says remember me when you enter your kingdom and he says today you will be with me in paradise I don't know, if you want to redefine paradise, that's fine, but you're probably not going to redefine that as hell. So that's not what that means. This is likely a victory lap. And I'm a theology nerd, and you want to nerd out about it, I would love to nerd out about you with it, but we've already spent too much time here. When you see this verse, think, Jesus, victory, lap. We keep going. Uh, Because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited, (coughs) excuse me, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, he's gonna do something weird here for a second. It's not weird, it's just weird to us. So, hang on with me. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. So, what's he talking about? Noah suffered. Here's how Noah suffered. For decades, God said, I'm going to judge the world, I'm going to cleanse it from sin. You are going to build a giant boat in the desert. And by building this boat, you're associating with me. You're saying you belong to me. You're obeying me. And by the way, everyone's going to make fun of you and be rude to you for decades. That sucks. That's a horrible job, right? Here's your job. Go build a boat in the desert and everyone's going to make fun of you for like 100 years. Oh, that's awesome. Great. Noah staked his life on it. He's so associated with the God of the Bible that he said, yes, I'm going to do what you say. I'm, I can't hide the fact that I'm associating with you since I'm building a giant boat. They have built the ark, by the way, to scale in the great state of Kentucky, and I want nothing more than to go visit the giant ark. I'm like, I say this with all sincerity, I'm so excited to go get in the giant ark. Now, Noah built that by hand, right? Take that Etsy, right? You can't buy one of those on Etsy, by hand the ark, right? He builds a giant ark and everyone's making fun of him until everyone dies in a giant flood, right? But he's so associating himself with God. There's no hiding the fact that he's doing this thing that God's telling him, right? This is not a secret project. It's ginormous because everything's got to go in it. Now, he's going to draw this comparison, I think, to this. And there's a little phrase we're going to have to unpack, so just hang on with me, Okay. That is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this. And we'll talk about it. Now saves you. Now we'll really talk about that one. Because some of you are like, what, what? Did you just say baptism saves you? I thought baptism didn't save you. I thought it was Jesus that saved you. Yes, we'll get to it, I promise. Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God. There's our word again, for a good conscience. So Noah, he's associating himself with God and then gets in the ark and goes through the water. And then Peter's saying, hey, this thing that is baptism. Now here's how we know it's not... So when we hear saved, we think this word, and you may have never heard it, and that's okay, this idea of regeneration. By regeneration, we mean that you have been saved by God. You belong to Jesus now. Your sins are paid for, and you belong to him. That's what it means to become a Christian. Now here's what we have to be careful with. The Bible has this thing called... Semantical range, okay? So we have this same exact word being used in a number of ways. You have been saved. We're talking about regeneration when we say have been saved. You are being saved. That's called sanctification. That's this process, this wonderful, beautiful, thank you Jesus process by which you are the person you now are in Christ. You're new. And you're also doing these things that you used to do, the old you used to do. And we're in the process of taking those things off and putting on the new. It's called being sanctified. You're changing, right? Sometimes you don't even feel like you're changing, but you look back five years later, and you're like, wow, look at all the work God did. Thank you, Jesus, you are amazing. Now, he also says you will be saved. This means in the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection, you're with Jesus forever and everything's put back the way it's supposed to be. So you have been saved, you are being saved, you will be saved, and not only that, Titus, pardon me, 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that women will be saved through childbearing. So we don't mean regenerated through childbearing, right? What we don't mean by that is that men will be saved by Jesus and regenerated that way. And ladies, you can get pregnant and have some babies and that's how you will be saved. That's not biblical and if a church teaches that, they aren't Christian just for the record. I think when it says you'll be saved through childbearing, it means you will be, in this sense, sanctified through the act of being a mama. Now, he's not talking about papas, and he's not, by saying mamas get sanctified through childbearing, he doesn't mean papas don't get sanctified through childbearing too. Okay, let's be clear on that. But he happens to be zeroing in on ladies, and he's saying the act of having babies and having children as they grow up helps you become more like Jesus. It sanctifies you, yes? It exposes your sin, just like it does papas. We're just talking about mamas, so don't get mad at me about not talking about papas, right? Turns out most of these things, I think all these things are true of dads too, right, that I'm about to say as I go through my notes in my mind before anyone starts throwing eggs. (laughs) Having children that are just like you or your spouse who grow up The four-year-old version of you is sanctifying for you. You're welcome, right? It turns out you have sin you don't know about until you meet a four-year-old version of you in the mirror, and you look at yourself, and you say, well, thank you, Jesus. I'm so glad to be sanctified. You have saved me, and you are saving me, and you will save me after you lock yourself in the bathroom for a while and chill out or whatever okay so when he says saves here coming back to this this word saves it's called semantical range it can mean different things now in context here note that he says uh safe baptism corresponds not as a removal from dirt so he's saying the act of being baptized getting put in water is not the thing that saves you in fact getting put in the water itself the water itself doesn't doesn't change you right if it would, we wouldn't have this amazing camp experience where you get baptized like three times, right? Because you did that thing before camp and then you went to camp and you thought, like, oh, I should really get baptized now. And then you go to camp again and you say, I did that thing before camp, I should probably get baptized again. Uh, and you, it becomes this ritual by which you're trying to cleanse away the things that you've done. I have good news for you. The water's not what cleanses it. It's not the dirt. So when we talk here, we're talking about this appeal to the conscience. To be baptized is for a regenerate person to say, I was a sinner and I've been saved by Jesus, and to stand before God's people and to stand publicly and say, I am staking my life on Jesus. My life belongs to him. May I be set apart for him. This is my pledge. This is my vow. Jesus has saved me. I belong to him. He is mine. I am his. And it is this public association and declaration with Jesus that he has done mighty things in your life. And to be frank, we cheapen this in the States. If I can be really honest, we we cheapen this a great deal. We miss that our brothers and sisters in the developing world, if you are a Muslim and you go and you get baptized in any number of Muslim countries at this point in time, that is your death sentence. That is your death warrant being signed because you have publicly said you're no longer... Toying with the idea of Christianity, you have publicly said, I am a Christian, I belong to Jesus, I am staking my life on him. They're willing to risk it all. Friends, when we become catechumen, this is a fancy word for when we get baptized. What we're doing is we're saying publicly, I have staked my life on the cross and on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I need you to publicly know that I belong to him. And this is his command for us. You always have to be careful with this stuff. Matthew 28 and 18, go therefore and baptize, right? Like he talks about baptizing. And so sometimes we just come down when we realize it's Easter and we're going to do some baptizing. So what it says is that you're commanded to be baptized. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. But we also need to see this this massive response to the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives and to be someone who has been saved. By this, I mean regenerate and say, meh, I'll get baptized some other time. Is to miss the biblical significance of what Jesus has called us to. In fact, it's such a clear response. We see that there in the book of Acts when, when the, the Ethiopian eunuch hears the gospel. He says, let's get baptized. And they say, right here, all I have is a ditch. And he says, perfect, I love Jesus. I gotta get baptized. I gotta let the world know. I gotta associate. I gotta stand with Jesus. And so they find some ditch and stick the guy in it. It's actually there. And then Philip gets transported, which I have no time to talk about Philip getting transported. But it's right there in the book of Acts, and it's wonderful. And so we publicly associate with Jesus in baptism, not as the removal of dirt, not as the ceremony, but as this appeal to his good conscience where we're saying, Jesus, you're my everything. I'm staking everything on you. You're my everything. Help me, Lord God Almighty. through the resurrection. Now what's amazing is that he just launches into doctrine in the middle of his sentence. Cool, we've talked about baptism in this reality of this appeal, but all of a sudden he just jumps back into the resurrection through the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because it's the resurrection. We're appealing and staking our lives on the resurrection. No resurrection, no Christianity, no Restoration Road Church, no me being a Christian, no you being a Christian. We're staking our lives on a viable reality that you have been washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and not height nor depth nor powers of principalities. Even your stupid sin can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And baptism is our public way of proclaiming that truth and staking our life on it. Who has gone into heaven and is the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. We stand on the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ as His people. You belong to Him. He's yours. You are His. And therefore, we will suffer with Him. We will associate with Him. He is everything, and without Him I have nothing. If you're not a Christian, I'm pleading with you, today is the day. This is why we're here. This is what counts. This is what matters. You are apart from God, and through Jesus, he will change that right now. He will save you from yourself. He will save you from your sin. We don't put our lives together and come to Jesus when we're all cleaned up. We come to Jesus with dirty, broken, empty hands, and he saves us, and he reaches down and redeems us, and he changes us right now. So if you're not a Christian, turn from him and turn to him now. It's as simple as honestly sitting in your seat and saying, All right, Jesus, I'm in. I want to love you. I want to follow you. I want you to save me. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Please, Jesus, help me. And if you do that, we would love more than anything to, to talk with you about that reality and help you figure out what comes next for the rest of your life. Uh, if you are a Christian and we look at this life and we say, you know, I actually don't really feel very comfortable being associated with Jesus and I'm just a quiet Christian or whatever. And you realize, oh, I can't actually be a quiet Christian. I can't actually not associate with him publicly. My allegiance is with Jesus. That's not what my life looks like right now, but I want it. I want to be associated with him. I want my allegiance to be with him. What's going to change right now? What's going to change today? How are you going to live your life differently? And if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in the other spot, right? And I'm not, I never, ever mean this perfectly, but if you, if you, yeah, you're following Jesus and you got, some, you, got some, you got some tracks behind you, following Jesus and being faithful to Jesus, how are you then also going to help give of yourself to have other people follow Jesus? Where are you going to give of yourself to help them know him and love him? Uh, in a moment here, we're going to transition to communion. This is a wonderful feast that we participate in. This is, this is a meal by which we proclaim our allegiance to Jesus. So, if you are not a Christian, this is not for you. We are so thankful you are here. We're so glad you're here. But this is a special deal for Christian people where we come together and we proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So, 1 Corinthians commands us to take it seriously. So, we consider any sin that we have, anything that's getting between us and Jesus, and we repent. We just deal with that in our seat. We deal with Him and we change. We stop. We say, Jesus, I'm sorry. But then we come up and we take this as a celebration. This is a celebration. We celebrate that we have been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. We celebrate that Jesus has made us different. So though we take that sin part seriously, we also stand up and really celebrate the next part. We stand up as a celebration and remember his death, burial, and resurrection when we dip the bread in the wine and take this cup and meal together. I'm gonna pray for us. Thank you all.